Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Out of our air and out of our ocean is a tricky challenge, but where does it go? CO2 emissions is one thing, but there's a lot of CO2 in our oceans and our waterways that we need to get rid of. So how can we find ways to capture that carbon out of the oceans? And then even if you capture it, what are you going to do with it? It's not enough just to throw it in the ground and try and forget about it. Maybe we could find a way to make it work for us in new sustainable construction materials. It's easy to get caught up thinking about CO2 as a gas, something that is a problem in our atmosphere. And don't get me wrong, the emissions of CO2 from human sources in our atmosphere is causing tremendous issues on our planet. But there's something else on our planet that's getting filled with CO2, and that's our oceans and our other waterways. And the reason is because water is actually one of the largest carbon sinks we have in this planet. It absorbs around 30 to 40% of all anthropogenic CO2 emissions, surface water I'm talking about here. And that's pretty huge. The thing is, the oceans and the waterways have been absorbing CO2 for a very long time, and that creates problems. Problems in Australia that we're very familiar with. Ocean acidification, for example, is a byproduct of oceans acting as huge carbon sinks. This acidification can hurt not only marine life, but cause all kinds of problems to coral reefs. For example, it can reduce carbon and iron concentrations that harm shellfish and marine life and prevent reefs from keeping themselves regenerated and rebuilt. So the actual amount of CO2 going into our oceans is something we should also think about. It's not enough for to think about only how CO2 is getting into the air, but also how we then get it out of somewhere like the ocean. Now, a good thing about the ocean is it acts as a carbon sink. That's really important because it cuts down on our overall concentration in the atmosphere. That's a good thing. So we don't want to stop the ocean absorbing CO2. That's nice and helpful. But it's already pretty full and at a very difficult level to absorb much more without pretty nasty consequences for our oceans. So unlike cleaning up the air, trying to take out CO2 from the ocean is something that we probably should think about. And it's a bit more straightforward. You're not trying to suck all of the air and process this and then store out the carbon dioxide and let the other rest of the air go back out there. In the ocean, it's a bit more straightforward. And finding an efficient way to process ocean water, seawater, surface water, and enable it to take out carbon dioxide from that and then sink it somewhere else is a pretty important thing that researchers have been looking into not just because they want to come up with cool new geoengineering topics to save our planet, but also as a way of understanding the role that our oceans play in cycling carbon. In this particular case, we're going to look at a paper published in the journal Energy and Environmental Science with lead author Sioni Kim, the rest of the authors including Nietzsche, Rufa, Lake, Faransi and Holton. Now, they're working out of MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they are trying to find a way to come up with a more efficient method for trying to get CO2 out of the water. Because it's not that you can't do it today, you can. But most of the ways of actually getting CO2 out of the water involve lots of complicated membranes and catalysts. 
And these are tricky for a number of reasons, because first off, seawater is incredibly corrosive. So anything you put in there is going to have to deal with the fact that it's seawater. It's going to rust and eat it and react with it. So that's bad. Now, the other problem is that a lot of membranes involved is also creates another whole maintenance topic. So thinking about something that's going to get eaten and destroyed in the water, it's not really good for a large-scale process. Specifically, what's often done today is take a stack of membranes and then apply a voltage across them. This voltage then incentivizes the water in its presence to acidify and starts to split, converts the bicarbonates in the water out into molecules of CO2 that can then be sucked away under vacuum. This big stack of membranes as a way to have huge amounts of surface area to sort of promote this reaction. And this is good, but you need to use lots of membranes and chemicals to drive this overall acidification process and all kinds of complicated electroreactions at either end of the stack. This is a really complicated chemical process plant that shows that it's theoretically possible to split out CO2 from water, but really difficult to do so and actually really difficult to do so in a way that could be maintained or scaled well. So what the team at MIT came up with was a way to do this in a way that didn't use membranes at all, in a way that relied almost entirely on electrochemical cells. Now, this is a pretty funny process that they've developed because it's actually cyclic. Now, the way in which it works is there's reactive electrodes used to release extra protons to the seawater that is around the cells themselves. Now, these extra protons actually help dissolve carbon dioxide to dissolve out from the water. This process is the start of the cycle. So you're acidifying the water, getting out of that dissolved bicarbonates into this molecular form of carbon dioxide. You can then suck that out, because it's a gas, it bubble out. You can get that gas out under vacuum. But the problem is you now ended up with really acidic water. So you need to then process that water by passing it through a second set of cells with a reversed voltage to put those extra protons back in and turn the acidic water back to normal pH levels before. A way of thinking about this is just like subtly manipulating by adding and subtracting protons at the right time to chemically <laughs> encourage the water to let go of the CO2 and then package back up that water so it didn't really notice overall that anything really happened to it. So the end product of this is actually just normal water and CO2, which is great. You didn't use any complicated membranes in a huge stack for maintenance purposes, and you also didn't harm or create nasty byproducts in the water because it's a completely cyclical and reversed process. This is really cool because it's uh, using a basically the features of water to say, hey, water, let go of that CO2. Okay, now we'll patch it back up and let it go on its way, where that letting go is basically done by adding protons and taking them away again using these cells, these anodes and cathodes. It's a pretty clever trick that involves some pretty basic chemistry, something that even I am able to get my head around, that also scales pretty well. Now, what would you want to do with this kind of technology? Obviously, you're not going to be able to fix the entire planet. That's not a practical thing to talk about. Anyone who wants to try to sell you a vision of sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and sequestering it is 
really probably selling something that maybe have a limited effect in a small area, but not necessarily the greatest of macro solutions. But in water, reducing acidification in water is something else. It's trapped in one spot normally, it's easy to get your hands on, and it also can, in large concentrations, have tremendous impact on the life around it. Air tends to circulate and it's complicated, that's what our atmosphere is. The oceans though, yes they do circulate and yes they are very tricky and complicated, but local effects in water are way more easy to think about and target. So let's take for example something like a fish farm. A fish farm will also tend to acidify the water, it's acting as a carbon sink for all kinds of stuff from the fish, waste and just them living. And if you had a way to drop out the acidification of that water by removing carbon dioxide from the water itself, that would be pretty good. Now, you're not going to fix the entire ocean, you're not going to save an entire reef, but you are going to reduce the local impact around that particular fish farm. If, for example, you found a site on the reef that was particularly damaged, you could deploy this same kind of technique. This is a pretty interesting application of a technology. Now, okay, when you've got the carbon dioxide out of the water, there's you still have a problem, right? Because you have to then put that CO2 somewhere. So, okay, if you're using that CO2 as another product, as a feedstock for chemicals and material production, that's great. That is something we actually do need CO2 for. But the problem is we actually really need a really small amount of CO2, not a lot. So we're going to end up with an overabundance of CO2 that you need to do something with. Trying to pump it back underground is great, but difficult. And you know this from all the discussion around carbon capture and storage. The getting it out is the easy part. The putting it away and getting it to stay there, it's the harder part. So what's what's really the point that we're talking about here? Well, if you think about these deacidification plants for water in another way, is they're kind of like treatment plants for water. They're doing another treatment process for the water that is really, really helpful, that helps reduce water acidification. This might have some great benefits. And actually, it raises another point. When you have a desalination plant, you're already doing something which is processing the water. You could use, actually, carbon dioxide as this carbon dioxide removal as a part of that process as the water is returned to the sea. It doesn't add extra really that much cost to the say desalinization plant, but as a giant ocean scrubber, this is pretty cool. Another place you could think of deploying one would be on a ship. These ships are traveling through the oceans, dumping huge amounts of carbon into the air and into the waters, and cleaning them up a little bit as they go is not a bad way to approach it. So, of course, this isn't a perfect solution. The things with many climate change mitigation techniques is there's no silver bullet magic scientific answer. But just being cleaner and trying to capture stuff out over acidified environments like waterways or areas around reefs or fish farms, these are good tangible things that are useful. They can be added on to existing machinery equipment plant to help better treat water. Yes, pollution from the water from a factory is bad, but we can make it at least cleaner. And things like this aren't going to reverse suddenly hundreds of years of human-based emissions, but they're certainly going to stop more going in there. There's a great paper published in the journal Energy Environmental Science with lead author Sioni Kim and others from MIT.
to one of the downsides we just talked about in pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or out of the water, you name it, is that it has to go somewhere. And you have to store it somewhere. Trying to pump it underground is one solution, but you've you got to get it to stay there, and it's tricky, even if you manage to do so. And researchers from Rice University have been coming at this from a different angle. In a paper published in the journal Cell Reports of Physical Sciences, researchers like Sumarabata Roy, the lead author on this paper, a list of collaborators working under the direction of the lab of Mohamed Rahman, have been trying to explore how you could come up with better ways to use this carbon dioxide in a way that could be beneficial for an end product, not just dumping it in the ground and sealing it up and throwing away the key, but actually making something, making something better. And this actually is related to a bigger problem. When we think about our building and construction, it's a huge amount of steel and cement, and they're expensive, they come at a high cost in both dollars and also carbon dioxide emissions. We want to think about general construction industry and all industries that feed it, we can think about around 40% of global emissions. So it's a big player, and it's an important player to address. So we're going to come up with sustainable ways that have less CO2. That's important. So how to tackle both this topic of using excess CO2 and making better materials to lower construction industries, carbon dioxide emissions, is a kind of strategy that Mohammed Rahman was actually trying to investigate. Now, wood is really cool. It is a sustainable, renewable structural material, and it's a material we're incredibly familiar with. We've been using it for a long time. We know how to work with it. There are challenges, though, because wood isn't as strong as steel. But if you do certain things to wood, you can get it to be really strong. This is called engineered wood. They have really great strength, way better than just regular, normal, untreated wood. And to do this, you need to actually encourage the wood to do a number of things. Now, you can create engineered wood beams. That's where you get a bunch of wood and laminate it together with glue and squish it together to make some kind of compound mesh. That's good. There's other ways you can also create engineered wood to actually improve themselves. When you think about wood, you're probably thinking about something pretty solid, but it's actually a network of fibres that are really holding something together. This network of cellulose fibres is what gives wood its strength. But if you want to engineer it and re-engineer it, you've got to break that down first, a process called delignification. And wood is basically cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin. And lignin is the thing that gives it colour. So if you take lignin out through delignification, you end up with a colourless wood, which is really unnerving, but basically what happens. Now, you can pretty easily take lignin out of something, but you don't normally want to because it's really important. But once you have the wood without its lignin, which you can take out using pretty safe standard chemical processes, you can then get rid of the hemicellulose, the other component in the wood, by using hydrogen peroxide or bleach. That's a pretty nasty chemical process, but at the end of that, you have a basically delignified wood. So if you take that wood and you then this, which is basically at this point just cellulose. If you take that and then soak it in some pretty interesting things, they've developed a microparticle mixture of metal organic framework or MOF. This particular one is the Calgary Framework 20 or CALV20. Now, MOF's metal organic frameworks have incredibly complicated structures with really high surface areas. 
and they use to be able to absorb carbon dioxide into their pores. They pick this particular moth to use because it fit neatly inside and interacting with the cellulose. And so they really bonded pretty nicely together. And it sucks in a lot of carbon dioxide and then attaches itself to the wood. They're actually just the cellulose what's left behind. And in this case, they've actually created wood, which has some elements of the natural wood taken out of it, the lignin, the hemicellulose. But you add in new materials, and one of the important parts is the researchers added lots of CO2, which are absorbed in by these moths. Now, this is a pretty cool process because you've actually then added even more CO2 through a crystalline process into the wood. But it's not just to sink CO2 for the purpose of sinking CO2. This moth is actually making the wood itself stronger, greener and stronger, by using the byproducts and actually making them have some value, making the wood itself stronger. Now, it's not like you can just go into any piece of wood and add it to it today. No, no, you have to actually undertake some processing, some delignification first to do this. But it's showing a way that you can actually put carbon dioxide into wood and for a reason or purpose that you actually want to, to make it stronger and more useful in certain construction applications. So this is a method of actually carbon sequestration that's not just pumping it in a hole and forgetting about it, but actually turning it into a valuable product that you can use. Engineered wood that actually gets strong and grows more strongly and also sinks carbon dioxide for you at the same time. It's a one-two punch of carbon emission reduction for the construction industry. Of course, this is an interesting proof of concept produced by Rice University, but it shows a way to actually, you could scale this kind of technique to develop new kinds of engineered wood that serves an interesting purpose to both reduce emissions and take in some of that CO2 that is produced through other sequestration methods. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. Yes, we found out ways to decarbonify our oceans and remove some of the acidification, plus ways to make sequestered carbon work for us in new sustainable construction materials. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.